Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 409th edition of Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills in Hollywood, California. And this is the place where entertainment and technology intersect. For the, Most people know that this is the center of entertainment. But I guess a lot of people don't know that this is also a big center for technology. Um, right, across, right along the coast now, it's um, wall-to-wall entrepreneurs and um, VCs, accelerators, they're everywhere. And uh, it's now the third largest technology center in the world after Silicon Valley, of course, number one, Tel Aviv, number two, and Los Angeles, number three. So this is a booming technology hub. Last week was a fantastic week for me. I saw two brilliant shows, completely different, but both fantastic. Firstly, the Rolling Stones with the Rose Bowl in LA, 80,000 people going absolutely nuts. They are unquestionably, despite their age, the best rock and roll blues band in the world. And the thing that really struck me was that the crowd was mainly 25 to 45. It was a very young crowd, and uh, which is unusual considering the average age of the band is 77. (laughs) The second great show that I saw was Tarantino's um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's an absolutely brilliant film. It's it's a real different take on the Manson family in the late 60s in Hollywood. Pitt and DiCaprio are both brilliant and they're the... um, 2000s version of Redford and Newman. If you get a chance to go along and see it, it is sensational. Now, I found out something this week that really surprised me. According to the US Constitution, women in the United States are not equal. I should have known that because I've certainly heard about the Equal Rights Amendment, but in my mind, I didn't put the two together. American women won the right to vote on August the 26, 1920. That's nearly 100 years ago when the 19th Amendment was ratified. But the right to vote does not give women in this country full equality. The US Constitution does not say that men and women are equal. In 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment, which gave women equal rights, fell short of the three-quarters majority needed due to opposition by Republican men and women. The Equal Rights Amendment was written by Alice Paul in 1943, and she was the founder of the National Women's Party. She was very impressive. She studied at colleges and universities in the US and in the United Kingdom, and she earned a master's degree and a doctorate in sociology. She earned a law degree and a law master's and doctoral degrees from American University. And she joined demonstrations for the 
British suffragist movement in the early 1900s. Returning to the US in 1910, she pushed American suffragists to try the confrontational techniques she'd seen applied in Britain, including civil disobedience. And uh, in 1913, Paul and Lucy Burns formed the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, which was later reconstituted as the National Women's Party and was much more aggressive. They used parades, petitions, protests and pickets to push for the rights, equal rights. Now, after women successfully won the right to vote, the National Women's Party turned its attention to getting all the other rights that they should have been entitled to. Women were excluded from the Constitution because they were not considered full citizens who should have the right to vote at that time. In the 1950s, Michigan Congresswoman Martha Griffiths pushed the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to double down on its enforcement of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. She introduced the amendment on the House floor every single year, but was unsuccessful in getting it passed until 1970 when it was passed by the House. But the Senate didn't pass it. It didn't pass the Senate until two years later. Now, Congress then set a seven-year deadline for ratification. To be ratified, the Equal Rights Amendment has to be approved by 75% of the states. But anti-feminists mobilised to defeat it. They believed that the Equal Rights Amendment would do away with much of the special status granted to women, including the right to be supported by men, and it would damage the traditional American family. They argued that a woman should have the right to be in the home as a wife and mother. They also believed the Equal Rights Amendment would lead to a future of gender-neutral bathrooms and women being drafted into the military. Well, that actually happened, didn't it? But it didn't happen until 70 years later. The deadline for ratification was extended to 1982, and still, when that deadline arrived, only 35 of the 50 states had passed the amendment. They were three states short of the three-quarters majority required by the Constitution. Now, two more states have recently ratified the amendment, Nevada in 2017 and Illinois in 2018, which means only one more state is needed to have the amendment added to the Constitution. It is incredible that in this day and age, there's still 15 states who haven't passed an equal rights amendment to give women equal rights. That is outrageous. Now, it's believed that Virginia will soon become the 38th state to ratify, and then that would make women and men equal. Now, although American women have made significant gains in equality since the 1970s, advocates say that an Equal Rights Amendment could still have a profound effect on the law and on American society. So let's hope that Virginia can ratify the amendment sooner rather than later. What about the other 13 states? What is the matter with those fuckers? Jeez, how hard could it be to say, okay, we pass the Equal Rights Amendment. That would seem to me to be the easiest thing on the planet to do. 
I don't know. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.8 million people that get it every day. It takes about 30 seconds to a minute and a half to read, and it's on a different subject every day. We talk about just about everything to do with business and what's happening in the world. In today's newsletter, we discussed whether organic food is more nutritious and delicious than conventional food. So if you want to know the answer to that question, well, I'll tell you the answer now. Um, Organic food is not better in any of those things, but if you read today's newsletter, you'll find out all about it. Now, the one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter, and to receive it, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe Now, Bitcoin sitting around $10,000 after reaching nearly $14,000 a month ago, so it's down four grand. Still, the popularity of crypto is increasing, sentiment's improving, and prices are likely to continue to trend higher for the year. I fully expect that um, Bitcoin prices will hit $50,000 to $100,000 per Bitcoin in the next 12 months. There's going to be some big changes. Facebook's Libra coins, a big deal for the crypto industry, but it doesn't really pose a threat to Bitcoin or any other decentralized coin because when somebody buys Libra tokens, they're essentially buying a stable coin that's backed by a basket of major currencies that happens to be managed by Facebook, which will give Facebook enormous power. But this should enable users to use the Libra, similar as to how they'd use dollars within Facebook's ecosystem, but it'd be more in a more efficient way and uh, Facebook probably make a hell of a lot more money. Libra's centralised, meaning that it has a third party, which is Facebook, responsible for managing the assets that are backing up the coin. Now, this is a lot different than Bitcoin, as Bitcoin and other traditional transactionals and store of value coins are true peer-to-peer cryptocurrencies, and they're independent of any third-party involvement, which is, of course, why everybody likes them. Because who wants outside parties filling in your money or knowing who you're paying or why you're paying them? Bitcoin and other transactional or st- store of value coins are volatile, as we've seen with Bitcoin, and they can increase greatly or fall in price while the Libra is designed to be a stable coin. The widespread use of digital tokens like Libra and others from, I'm sure you'll get them from Amazon and Apple that'll come down the line, should help propel the entire crypto industry into the mainstream. However, it's important to remember that any tokens coming from major corporations will be fiat-backed stable coins designed to improve overall corporate efficiency. So corporate-backed tokens are less of a threat to decentralised digital asset industry, but are more of a legitimising component that should help propel Bitcoin and other major altcoins into the mainstream. Now, one thing that's important, there's only 20 million Bitcoin owners worldwide, so... 99.95% of the entire global market is untapped and doesn't have Bitcoin. So the world's fiat money supply is over 90 trillion and Bitcoin's market cap's only 200 billion. So it's 450 to one. So Bitcoin has got a long way to grow. So at 1% of global fiat market share, we would see Bitcoin at over $50,000 per token. 
And as the world becomes more digitized, Bitcoin becomes more popular, gains market share. I think its price is going to continue to trend higher. And Bitcoin's only got 21 million tokens, and that'll be hit in 2024. And uh, so you're going to have all the people on the planet fighting over 21 million tokens. The price will definitely rise. My guest today is Tim Fargo. He's an entrepreneur. He's an international keynote speaker and a best-selling author. He's president presently serving as president and CEO at socialjukebox.com. And that's an app that eliminates the need to continually schedule your posts and it manages all your content, which is very, very handy. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with my guest, Tim Fargo, in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, over the last five and a half, nearly six years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do. And we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. And we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs who have achieved achieved success before us. We certainly don't need to repeat the mistakes of others. So the aim of this segment is to give you the knowledge to address these fundamental issues and to assist you to become successful. My guest today is Tim Fargo. He's an entrepreneur, an international keynote speaker, and he's a best-selling author. He's presently serving as president and CEO at socialjukebox.com, a great name, I might add. I think that's, you know, that's one of the really good app names. And it's an app that eliminates the need to continually schedule your posts, and it manages your content. This is what I need, trying to trying to juggle content for my newsletter every day and the radio show and everything else. It's a nightmare. And the apps received loads of media dimensions, including Inc., Forbes, and Social Media Examiner. Tim was the founder of Omega 
Insurance Services, an, investiga- an investigative <laughs> firm. He started in an extra bedroom and sold <coughs> seven years later for $20 million. Tim, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard all around the world. Hey Bob, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. That was a that was a very nice intro. I actually almost I almost got impressed myself, but then I realized it was just me. <laughs> Where are you at the moment? I am in Rudzow, Poland. In Poland, what's the weather like there? Blustery. It's uh, it's it's about. Probably 14 degrees and uh, and very windy. We we just had a, a pretty warm spell and then we had a cold front hit. So now we're it's a bit stormy, right. but otherwise lovely. Not bad. Yeah, I, I'm spoiled living in Southern California for so long. I'm in Sydney at the moment and it is cold. Well, cold for me anyway. Now, for our listeners that might not have heard about Social Jukebox. How does it work? Um, essentially, you put your content in, and each jukebox, so to speak, is a reservoir of content. So, for instance, somebody like you that's doing kind of you know broadcasting, um, <clears throat> you might have uh, your back catalog of um, shows and whatnot in one jukebox, and maybe you'd have some things that you, um, like maybe some blog posts you'd written in the past in another jukebox because you maybe want to distribute those at different speeds. And then we have a thing called targeted posts, which is a more specific um, way to share content. And like if you had a new show, you'd put it there and then schedule it to transfer after a certain number of days. So essentially what it does is if you wanted to create a media schedule, Right. You can automate that media schedule. So as you and then as you have new content, you can add it into the system. I mean, that's really the idea. I got it. Um, I had written a book, and that I mean, the whole product came out of. I got so sick of being on social media trying to promote the book. Yeah, I was like, I this is this, ta- this, this is taking way too much of my time. So um, I ended up contacting a friend of mine. He built the product for me. Right. Um, and then I found out people were a lot more interested in my software than they were my book. So I was like, well, you know what? <laughs> Screw the book. Welcome to the software business. And uh, and the rest is history. So, <laughs> How did you come up with the name Social Jukebox? It's one of those two o'clock in the morning wow moments, was it? Yeah. I mean, well, it was a combination of wow and like basically going through a list of possible names um like first doing a ser- search on what domains are available which is um, none <laughs> well none with you know it's like you know my granny's social media distribution system.com yeah none with um, any sizzle yeah so you know you you quickly eliminate a whole herd of names because they've been taken or parked or whatever yeah um and uh Lo and behold, it was available. We started out as Tweet Jukebox because in the beginning it was just Twitter, but now it's Twitter and Facebook everything, and LinkedIn. Yeah, so, so. How did you become an entrepreneur? Did you pop out of college and go, aha, I want to be an entrepreneur? Screw the boss. Um, I think it was more, I mean, from when I was a kid, um, 
I was cutting grass and shoveling snow and running errands for neighbors. I mean, basically, I was a little bit of a mercenary. I mean, if you had some cash and you had something that was legal, I would do it. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> and, it, and it, because my dad was, and it was also partly because my dad was uh, pretty tough to get a dollar out of. Um, so, but anyhow, I, I think it was born out of, I really preferred... I mean, because I had like a, when I was maybe 15, 16, I actually had a job. Um, and I much preferred just, if I cut someone's grass, I could go there, get the job done, and then just like take off. Right. Um, so my, my hourly rate ended up being much better than working as some, you know, uh, minimum wage earner at some store or whatever, you know, typical kind of student jobs. Yeah. I, no, I understand. Uh, so... What was the first challenge when you were when you went? What was your first apart from cutting lawns and things? What was your first entrepreneurial role? What was the first thing you took on as an entrepreneur? <clears throat> um, I would say the stagger step, the intermediate step, where I really kind of got back into it with any degree of oomph was um, I tutored people all through college, and. Um, it started out as just like like a tiny bit, and then it turned into I was selling blocks of time. You could get a discount if you bought 10 hours. You could get a deeper <laughs> discount if you bought 20 hours. And so, I mean, I actually was – I think my grades dipped a little bit because I was actually doing that so much. I mean, it was more like obviously it was solopreneuring. Yeah. But um, – and I went from that, and actually this kind of segues into a, a great failure. Um <laughs> I decided I had this idea to um, this is when databases were new right, right. I mean it, they weren't they weren't new they weren't new but PCs were new and like having a database that was accessible to a normal human being was pretty new yeah. um, so I had the idea um, based on like when I had gone to the career center it was horrible it was like a horrible experience so I thought okay I can have people put their resume into a database and then I'll market to employers and instead of them doing on-campus recruiting, they can contact me and I'll get them the resumes they want from whatever university. Sure. And, and um, I learned all kinds of lessons there. Um, lessons about the difficulty in introducing a new product. Uh, lessons about not knowing how to market a brand new product. Lessons in being undercapitalized. Uh, because I burned, I mean, I had saved from tutoring and stuff. I'd saved about 20 grand and I burned through every dime of it yeah. um, with, with, very close to zero traction. Well, there are so. all the challenges, all the challenges that you mentioned are challenges that, you know, I speak to entrepreneurs every day, and they're the same challenge <clears throat> every entrepreneur faces. Um, and they're difficult challenges. They're not, um, it's not easy to become successful if you're starting from scratch and, you know, there's a big world out there that's got to hear about you and it's damned hard to communicate. Well, but this is something that I think is really relevant to the audience. I mean, if, if people are somewhat agnostic, I'm pretty agnostic as to business type, which is how I did investigations and now I'm doing software. I mean, to me, like, I'm just interested in being in business. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but a lot of people, and especially a lot of young people I hear, oh, I, I want to, you know, I need a great idea. It's like, well, you know, look, take, a, take, a, take a page out of Richard Branson's book. I mean, he doesn't really do new businesses he out-executes on existing ones. Yeah. And um, 
and that's a much safer, much easier way to do things. I mean, that, and that was part of the problem with what I was doing. I mean, when I told people, like, you'll put your resume in a database, they had no idea what I was talking about in 1987. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the challenges. Like, if you're going to do something, sometimes it's better to be a me too with a niche or a me too with better execution than to go, oh, I have this, like, even if you have, like, the most awesome idea in the world, I mean, like, the first internet browsers, I mean, they're all gone, Yeah. you know? I mean, so um, the people that are left standing don't necessarily tend to be the first to market, and I think it, it maybe sounds sexy that you have a new idea, but it's a lot harder, it's a lot harder, in my opinion, to make it with a new idea than it is to out-execute on an existing one. Usually, the um, it's not the first person in the markets that's successful. If you have a look across um, most of the um, um, new so-called new businesses over the last fifteen years or so, none of them were first to market. They all um, came into the market after someone else had done the hard yards. I, I worked for a, um, a multi-billionaire once. Um, as the marketing director and he used to say the one thing that you never want to do is get into the business of trying to educate the market it's very expensive and somebody will come along and just pick up where you left off and be a success and it's true right well um, what's that I don't know who originally coined this phrase but you know the definition of a pioneer is a guy face down in a mud puddle with an arrow in his back um, <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard that before, but I'm going to use it from now on. <laughs> but, but it's funny because people are like, oh, he's pioneering. It's like, yeah, great. Well, you know, there's an arrow destined for him. Um, because I, I, I think it, and it's, I mean, it's exactly what your, um, you know, former colleague said. I think people underestimate the difficulty. Like if you say the word donut, everybody listening has an idea in their mind of what a donut is. Sure. You know, but if you come up with something brand new, forming that idea in their head isn't easy. And especially today when there's so many, there's the market, like the channels of marketing and everything have become much more complex. Getting that information out has become even more difficult than before. I mean, it's easier to get into a marketing channel. I mean, because of social media, et cetera, but it's, but it's, more difficult to be heard because there's a lot of noise out there. Yeah, so. yeah, and, and it is extremely difficult to differentiate yourself today. I mean, it's always been hard, and it's always been everybody's, um, you know, first thought is how do I differentiate myself? But today, it really is getting more difficult because there's there's more and more um, weird, wonderful, and wacky things out there to compete with. Absolutely. So. I think one of the other issues with um, entrepreneurs that I find is that a hell of a lot of entrepreneurs want to get out there with their new product, have it for 12 months, flog it to somebody for multi-millions of dollars, and go and lie on the beach somewhere and be fanned by beautiful girls feeding them grapes. Um, There's not as many people, not as many entrepreneurs that think, I want to get in this, I want to be in it for the long haul, I want to build and establish, you know, I want to build and establish a solid business. Um, people tend to be much more short-sighted in my, in my experience. 
Well, I'd have to say that the real money, in in my opinion, anyhow, is the the biggest challenge. Because I agree with you. I mean, there's I certainly enjoy the idea phase, the the ideas and coming up with new stuff. That's much more fun and interesting. True. But the money is the money is in execution. The money is in taking social jukebox and getting a hundred thousand more users. You know, the money is in <clears throat> getting your idea to become the dominant idea. I mean, Bezos had a great idea when Amazon was just a bookseller, yeah. right? But by staying in the game, and I mean, now they had an idea to share server space because they had such like surplus of server space because of building server farms. So now, I mean, their biggest business is the cloud, at least Absolutely. as a, on, a re- on a revenue basis. So, sure. I mean, when people think, oh, I want to have all this, I'm not saying it's not possible, but... In my opinion, the real big returns tend to be from putting up with the boring slog of making something better. I mean, I spend every day dealing, I do all the support for Social Jukebox myself. Right. And one of the benefits of that is I get to see the product through the customer's eyes. So it's the boring slog of going through and checking what they're talking about and then tweaking and tweaking and making the product a little bit better, a little bit better. But when you do that, you don't necessarily see each day as some kind of revolution, but what you may end up with at the end of the year will be because you've managed to take the rough edges off the stone. So all of a sudden, you know, what looked like just a rough diamond before is now quite polished and nice just by virtue of being in the game, staying in the game, listening to your customers, iterating. I mean, so, you know, that's, that's how you build momentum and build a base. I mean, I think, there's a chance, you know, that people will make it, but uh, with these kind of short-sighted plans. But those are outliers. That's why they make the news. When somebody comes up with a new idea and it quickly gets bought for a zillion bucks, it's in the news because it never happens. Yeah, that's true. So, but don't don't you come down to work-life balance for for most people? Because you know, being Bezos is one thing. You know, he's working 80 hours a week. He has been now for 30 years. He's not as young as he was anymore, and a hell of a lot of good parts of life have missed passed him by. Sure, he's got $100, million, $100 billion, but at what cost? Well, I completely agree with that. Um, but I think the challenge is, like, like with my business, I mean, I'm, I'm very occupied, but last week... I was in um, Bologna and Portofino and uh, the Cinque Terre coast of Italy, and I'm back in Poland for a week. But I was working there, I mean, using my phone and, and, and my laptop, but I was still going out and doing things yeah. and having a great time. And then I came back here, and now I'm, I am doing more work because I'm back kind of at home, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, next, next week, I'll be in Sicily for a week, goofing around. And I mean, I'll still do support and I'll still work on the product and I'll still interact with people. But I mean, I think you just have to make a conscious decision and perhaps that's actually the rub, you know, what we're talking about here about staying in the game. Yes. If, if the idea is I'm going to work a hundred million, you know, I'm going to work the maximum number of hours. And I'm going to do it for a year. I mean, that's not sustainable. No, it's not. And, and if you do find a buyer, if you if you're working like nutty hours to the point where you know you're just like getting burned out, 
you're likely to make a horrible deal because you just want the thing out from around your neck. Yeah. But if you get gone. No, but if you have a business that's more sustainable where, you know, you've built it with the idea of, you know, is this something I could like really want to do long term? You can stay in the business and build it properly. And if somebody wants to buy it, you're not you're not going to feel compelled to get rid of it because you're so tired of dealing with it. I think it's, a conscious, it's a conscious decision, though, isn't it, to give yourself time off? Like, um, you know, I'm a speaker as well, and, you know, I'm up around the 2,000-odd speeches, but we make sure that now that anybody that books us, we stay in the place for four or five days. <clears throat> you know, you speak for an hour, you have the other, the rest of the time off, we go exploring and we go, you know, do all the sites. But that's a conscious decision. You can't do as much work, but you... Um, you probably enjoy it much more and therefore a better presenter at the end of the day, but don't make as much money. Well, but then, I mean, there's a question about, like even when I sold Omega, I mean, a lot of people were like, hey, if you stay in it, you'll make even more. I'm like, um, <laughs> there's only so much food I can eat. I can only be in one house at a time. I mean, I think people have this idea and you know, everyone's got to decide for themselves. But from my perspective, like they, there's these like posters, whatever, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I couldn't disagree more. I think the more, can I, anyhow, the more stuff you have. I don't give a fuck what you say. Yeah, the more (laughs) shit you have. I mean, it's just an anchor. It's just an anchor. It's more stuff for you to worry about. It's more stuff for you to take care of. And, you know, I think there's far more to life just to, be able to be satisfied with having enough to maintain a nice lifestyle. Sure. You don't need to, you know, and you certainly don't need billions to do that. That's true. So, uh, I mean, not even close. Of all the projects that you've been in and around and involved with, what is the biggest challenge, the number one challenge that most entrepreneurs face? Ooh, um... I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things at different phases. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing we alluded to in the beginning, I mean, when you're getting started is just having people even know that you exist, um, you know, because it, it'll be very much at the forefront of your mind, but it may not be at the forefront of anyone else's. (laughs) That's right. Um, but so you have that, you know, I mean, in the first stage you have kind of the awareness issue and, but then as I think as things go on, it's. And this is just from my own experience. I think that that there's a huge temptation to branch off into stuff you know nothing about. And you see it happen in companies all the time. You can tell like the founder or the owner has gotten bored. And it's like when when I ran Omega, people were like, oh, we could do this kind of investigation. Because we just did insurance fraud surveillance. That was it. Right. And people say, oh, well, we could do domestic investigations like cheating spouses. I'm like, yeah, well, we could probably make money selling socks, but that doesn't make a great idea. Yeah. Um, and by staying focused in one thing we knew a lot about and we had processes for, we were able to grow faster and cleaner. But, of course, there were times where you just get really bored with doing that. And I think that's probably one of those, like the siren song, kind of how entrepreneurs end up on the rocks, I think. You start extrapolating your talent set or your skill set to that you're going to be good at everything. So you start doing stuff you don't know anything about. Yep. 
and then all of a sudden you go, hey, what happened to the business? <laughs> yeah. Good idea is to stick to your knitting, as they used to say. Um, yeah. Have you had to chase money to um, <clears throat> drive some of these businesses? Fortunately not. Um, I've, I mean, the, the only, at Omega, we had a bank line, but I mean, those, we were fortunate in that when we were looking for money, um, credit was, I wouldn't say it was like easy. I mean, we had to do a little poking around, but, um, but you know, like, I mean, these stories I hear about people going out and doing road shows and raising equity and I never did anything like that. That's hard, Yakka. It is, and it's soul destroying too, because you, you're out there pushing your idea, which you're very proud of, and person after person after person says, "No, I don't think so." Um, but unfortunately, today it's necessary because you can burn through money very quickly. Well, I would say though that there's a there's there may be something to be said for. Because I get people that like approach me all the time. They're like, "Oh, you know, I need money to start a business." I'm like, "If you're brand new, why don't you start? Why don't you get your chops by doing something? Like I said, like take an existing business and figure out how to run something that already exists before you like go off on a new idea and if, with your first business. I mean, don't stack the odds against yourself. Um, and there's because there's a ton of businesses, especially today." With all the like software as a service, renting space in the cloud. I mean, there's a lot of businesses today where you can get started without a ton of capital. Um, you got to be a little more clever about it, but you can you can skate with a lot less money today um, than you did before. And if it's a good idea, if it truly is an idea that's going to get traction, then you ought to be able to see that relatively early. Um, where you can get at least kind of Raymond Noodle profitability. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but if you can't get that, I mean, if you if the only way for your idea to work is to be a multi-billion-dollar idea, then you know you probably have a problem. You certainly have a problem. Okay, people talk a lot about hustle. Yeah, I, I look back on my life. I think I've been hustling all my business life. But how is hustle a key element of success? Well, this is a, a, like a touch point with me because it gets talked about so much and I, I absolutely hate that word. Um, and I hate it for a reason because I, I associate it with people who claim to be super busy. Oh, yeah, I'm hustling, man. I'm doing all this stuff. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're getting shit done. It just means that you're a, a guy who's drowning is really, really busy. <laughs> He's 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 very busy and he's about to die. Um, so, I mean, the idea that more activity is going to salvage you is really false. And I and I hear when I hear the kind of this sort of devotion to the idea of being hyper busy. Look, I lived in Sweden for a few years, and I can tell you that their desire to make sure they have like a decent family life. I mean, they're very focused on doing things that matter. And I think there's a lot to be said for the approach of, you know, activity doesn't equal results. And, you know, if you stand back and look at where can I do something that will move my business forward, there's no question you have to work. I mean, I haven't found a business yet where, you know, you just like turn the key and it just like drives off on its own. But the idea that that the only way you're going to make it is by being constantly, frantically busy, I mean, there's two things. One, I don't think that's true. And two, 
to your earlier point about lifestyle, I think you you may you may end up making some money, but I think you're going to be miserable because if, if the only thing you're ever doing is running around chasing your business, I mean, what kind of life is that? I agree. Now, how long were you involved with Omega? Just under seven years. And it grew very quickly. So what allowed it to, to grow so quickly? Were you just um, in the right spot? place at the right time or did you have to knock off a lot of competitors along the way or were you just smarter than the average duck well um in the land of the blind you can say the latter if you wish no but in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king um and i think this is again a look there were a zillion people and there continue to be a zillion people in the investigative business it's a business that requires very little startup capital in many places in America, you don't even need a license. Or if you do need a license, the the just gargantuan hurdle to getting a license is that you've never been convicted of a felony. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, that setting the bar super high. Um, so, you know, it's super easy to get into. But just because there's a lot of people in a business doesn't necessarily mean that that's a tough business. It just means there's a lot of participants. Right. And so, I mean... You know, if you go to a running race, but everyone else has one leg and you have two, um, you've got pretty good odds. And um, I would say that in a lot of ways, that was the case with that business is it was um, if you know the book, The E-Myth, there were a lot of there are a lot of people in the investigative business that have a background in law enforcement. um, And so they're very good investigators. But that doesn't mean they're very good at building an infrastructure for a business. So we were, sorry, yeah. But so, so anyhow, we were able to like by being better business people, we were able to build processes and, and build a business that was more than just one guy doing great investigative work. So, do you, how did you differentiate yourself, um, or did you just allow the fact that you were so good at business and so? Um, technologically proficient or whatever to to carry the day for you? Well, I think in the beginning, I mean, because what does carry the business is ultimately they want to see that you've got good investigative chops. So we needed to make sure we had that. But very quickly, the way we ensured that continued as we grew was by having like really good processes. And because my the metaphor I always use is you know, I mean, if you get a Big Mac in Tokyo or you get a Big Mac in Shanghai or you get a Big Mac in London or in San Diego, they all taste the same. Yes. Now, you can dispute all day long or discuss all day long whether it tastes good or not, but but they do taste the same. But that's the that's the result of very, very stringent processes around how the thing is made and the, and the, and the components that it's made from. And I think if you, you can you can put that into any service and by doing that, we came up with a fairly narrow bandwidth of quality um, in terms of what got done when we did an investigation for you. So that level of reassurance, I mean, we maybe weren't the best investigator on every single case, but if you if you gave us a job, you could have a fairly high degree of certainty that the the job got done. Maybe there was someone who could do it marginally better, but probably wasn't worth looking around to find them. Was your growth mainly word of mouth, or did you have to flog the shit out of it? We flogged the shit out of it. Um, it always works. I, it, 
Well, but, but I mean, uh, that business, like insurance, at least at the time, insurance adjusters were making most of the assignments. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, kissing babies and, you know, going to trade shows and meeting these people and being in their pocket on an ongoing basis to like talk to them about, you know, do they have any work for us? So, and that was probably one of the other big things that helped us grow is we just were very good at finding good salespeople and training them. So where does um, Social Jukebox go from here? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, um, we, we started as Tweet Jukebox. We started out, when we went to a paid version, we had just over 500 clients. And now, you know, we've got closer to 2,000. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm doing things to continue to grow it, but I can't honestly say I'm not super energized to make it into some gargantuan thing because I kind of like being like having my hands around the whole thing. Sure. And part of that's because I've got money in the bank from Omega, right? Yeah. Um, but it still provides me a very nice living and I can do it from anywhere. I'm engaged. I enjoy it. So I don't, I'm, I, I, of course, I mean, I'd love it to grow, but I, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily um, hyper driven to turn it into some kind of like gigantosauric machine. Okay, so where does Tim Fargo go from here? I'm having a great time just traveling, running my business, and hanging out with my kids. I mean, I really am. Yeah. You know, I'd love to say like, well, you know, the next phase is going to be I'm going to build a rocket ship and we're going to go to Saturn. <laughs> um, I think somebody's but already just, trying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not my cup of tea. Um, I mean, everyone's got like they what they want to do and no one can kind of decide for someone else. But for me, my kids, my I have triplets and they just got out of high school, so... I'm kind of busy helping them get the trajectory they want on their own lives, and I'm glad to have the time to be able to do that. (laughs) Well, but the thing I want to make sure I do, I mean, that's a fair goal is to get them doing that, but I think an even better goal is to make sure that whatever they get into is something they want to stay at and that will provide a living for them. Because if it doesn't, I may need to. So, <laughs> Tim, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can learn more about Social Jukebox and Tim Fargo at socialjukebox, exactly as it sounds, .com. That's socialjukebox.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 409th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show. Coming at you on Voice America Business Network. And we're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in the entertainment and technology capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. Now, Greenland's been in the news a lot lately with <laughs> our president thinking he can buy the joint. God. 
I don't know what he's smoking, but mm. anyway, Greenland's the place where the planet's warmer and watery future is being written there. It's so warm there now, just inside the Arctic Circle, that on an August day, coats are left on the ground and scientists walk, work in the watery, melting ice without gloves. It used to be freezing cold all the time. In one of the closest towns, Kulasuk, the morning temperature is reaching 52 degrees Fahrenheit. And now that's ridiculous. The ice is thousands of years old, and this is the scary part, it's going to be gone within a year or two, adding more water to rising seas worldwide. Summer this year is hitting Greenland hard with record-shattering heat and an extreme melt. Have a listen to this number. By the end of this summer, 440 billion tonnes of ice, 440 billion tonnes of ice will have melted off Greenland's giant ice sheet, 440 billion tonnes, and that's enough water to flood Pennsylvania or the UK about six inches to a foot underwater. And that's just in the next few months. Forget what happens in the next few years. In just five days from July 31 to August the 3rd this year, more than 58 billion tonnes, that's 58,000 million tonnes, melted. That's over 40 billion tonnes more than the average. And that 58 billion tonnes doesn't count the huge calving events or the warm water eating at the glaciers from below. Helheim, one of Greensland's fastest retreating glaciers, it shrunk six miles since scientists went there just 10 years ago. Summit Station, a research camp which is two miles high and way north, warmed to above freezing twice this year for a record total of 16 and a half hours. So it was above freezing for 16 and a half hours. Before this year, it was above zero for just a few hours seven years ago. Again, once in 1889. And before that, the only time it raised above zero was in the Middle Ages. So if you look at climate model projections, we can expect to see larger areas of the ice sheet experiencing melt for longer durations of the year and greater mass loss going forward. There's every reason to believe that years that look like this are going to become more and more common. Greenland's ice sheet has lost about 255 billion metric tonnes of ice a year over the last few years, with the loss each year getting worse. Nearly all of the 28 Greenland glaciers are retweeting, retweeting, re, <laughs> retreating. See, that's, that's social media getting to me, especially at Helheim. At Helheim... The ice cliffs are somewhere between 225 feet and 328 feet high. 
and just next to them are Helheim's remnants, the sea, ice, snow and icebergs that are forming a mostly white expanse just with a mishmash of shapes and textures. Frequently, water pools amid that white glimmering are just a near fluorescent blue. Now, it takes thousands and thousands of years to grow an ice sheet, but they can be broken up or destroyed very rapidly. Some scientists believe that by the year 2100, which is 80 years' time, Greenland alone could cause four feet of sea level rise. So if what's happening today can flood the United Kingdom by a foot, just imagine what it would do with four feet of water. The interesting thing is in the United States, we would lose about 80 major cities. 80 major cities would be below sea level. That is scary. Now, the winter that used to last as much as 10 months, 11 months, 40 years ago, is now down to a short as five months. So we've gone from 10 or 11 months of winter in Greenland to five months. Even the sled dog teams for tourists can no longer operate. There isn't enough ice or snow. So the bigger picture, it's not good. It's not good for Greenland and it's certainly not good for Earth as a whole. In fact, it's an absolute disaster. You know, and the Amazon situation is diabolical and we really have to do something about it, but not until our, um, our government decides that it's going to do something is anything going to happen, which is sad. Um, so Greenland, 440 billion tonnes of, um, of ice gone every year. We talked um, this week in the, in the newsletter about um, organic produce, whether it's superior in taste and nutrition to um, regular produce. And um, it was found that genuine organic produce does not consistently have more vitamins and minerals than non-organic foods. It does have a higher level of antioxidants, which is a good thing. But as far as vitamins and minerals or taste, conventional foods are just as good. And also what I found was interesting was that um, Pesticides, there's about 43 pesticides that are banned from use on organic food. But there are about 100 pesticides that are legal on uh, 
um, organic foods. And because those pesticides aren't the real powerful ones, farmers just use a lot more of them. So you can use five times more pesticides. So the picture isn't pretty. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. And if you're always trying to be normal, you're always going to be as boring as batshit and you'll never know just how amazing you can be or how interesting your life can be. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful. The alternative to success really sucks. And this is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from my hometown of Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.